had a series titled, The Gospel According to Satan. What's that going to sound like? Let's find out. All right? We know he's a liar and a deceiver, don't we? So let me tell you a story about deception here. Most of you know this story. It's uh, the story of Bernard Madoff. Bernard Madoff engineered the largest Ponzi scheme in American history. All right? Now, uh, a Ponzi scheme is where I persuade you to invest in that which does not exist, and then I pay you the interest with money collected from new investors, also included to invest that which does not exist. And so to keep the scheme going, I've got to keep recruiting new investors. That's how it works. And Madoff did this for decades. To the tune of $19 billion. Now, analysts will say that when you factor in the lost opportunity cost, that number goes up to as high as $65 billion. He had a legitimate trading business in Manhattan on the 19th floor of a building called the Lipstick Building. But on the 17th floor, that's where he had his Ponzi scheme. He kept the two businesses separate. It was a remarkable deceit. Bernie Madoff played off of people's greed as well as their fear of missing out because few bothered to ask the hard questions about how he could pull off such consistent above-market returns um, uh, as long as those returns kept coming, right? He must know what he's doing. And, And those bold enough to ask too many questions were told by Madoff, well, hey, I'd just refund your money. And they say, oh, no, 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 I was just wondering, I was just wondering, see. I mean, he was smooth. He he created a sense of mystique and inner circle mystery, such that if if you wanted in, you couldn't just, you know, hire him. That's just not how it worked. You had to know someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone, and then maybe you might get in, see. And had the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 not happened, Madoff might have gotten away with it. But as it happened, um, he was arrested and convicted and sentenced. He was actually turned in by his sons. He was sentenced to 150 years in prison. He died of cancer in the year 2021. And his two sons died too. Uh, One son died by cancer and the other died by suicide. Oh, and Madoff's uh, sister and brother-in-law perished in in a murder-suicide situation. Just just a mess. Um, Madoff's body was cremated. No one will claim the ashes. And of course there was an investigation. The Office of Inspector General took the Securities and Exchange Commission to task in a 457-page report. And it's, it's a public document. Uh, you, you, can, you can Google it here even this morning. Yeah. And if you do, 
uh, you'll find these phrases that I want to highlight on pages 455 and 456. Here it is. However, the, the OIG, Office of Inspector General, found that although the SEC conducted five examinations and investigations of Madoff based on these substantive complaints, they never took the necessary and basic steps to determine if Madoff was misrepresenting his trading. Oh, and then here's another quote. Examinations were generally conducted, so when the auditors came in, the examiners came in to visit with Madoff, these examinations were generally conducted by inexperienced personnel, not planned adequately and too limited in scope. And then here's another quote. While examiners and investigators discovered suspicious information and evidence and caught Madoff in contradictions and inconsistencies, they either disregarded these concerns or relied inappropriately on Madoff's representations and documentation in dismissing them. So Madoff deceived them and inattentive, inexperienced, and unprepared people were deceived. Man, it's a tragedy. It's sad. It is sad. Uh, people, people lost everything. Yeah. And I think about that story, and, you know, I couldn't help but ask the question, well, now, you know, right? Would I have let myself be deceived? Would I have had the courage to ask hard questions to keep from being duped? Yeah. Hmm. Well, here's the deal. There is a deceiver worse than Bernard Madoff who is after you. Yeah. If you have your Bibles, would you meet me in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. The Apostle Paul talks about this deceiver and the schemes that he concocts against the people of God. Hear these words from the word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now this is the word of God. Now C.S. Lewis once said that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about the devil's. 
Lewis said, one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So, so one error is substition. The other error is superstition. Right? So Lewis talks about those two extremes. And then he says this. Readers are advised to remember. So, so everything else that you need to remember about the devil, remember this. The devil is a liar. That's what Jesus said in John 8, 44. He said, The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Literally, it says, he speaks out of his own character. That's just it. That's just what he says. So so he speaks out of his own. He speaks out of his own character, his own heart. He speaks out of his own. The the identity of the devil is deception and lying. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So we're going to consider this series on the gospel according to Satan. And it's not good news, Satan's gospel is. And you may be sitting here wondering, okay, this is heavy. You're right, it is. Yeah, it is, it is. Um, and you may be thinking, well, why, why now? Why this series on Satan? Here's why. Look up here. Our church's mission is about passionately pursuing Jesus Christ. And we hold that Jesus Christ is not merely a teacher of truth, but he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so he, he is truth. So, and so to pursue him is to pursue revealed truth, not constructed truth, not concocted truth. Not, so truth is discovered, not created. And... and that's a, you get that. Because we live in a world today, we live in an environment that says, well, I just, I want to concoct my truth, you see. And what Christianity teaches is just that truth is to be discovered and that truth exists outside ourselves, you see. And so what we want to be is a, is a church that pursues truth, Jesus Christ. Which means that we want to become a church of undeceivable disciples for Christ. Uh, our, our mission, to put it this way, would be to keep you from being a sucker. That's it. That's, we want a church wise unto salvation. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to consider lies that sound true. Uh, such as, uh, you will be like God. That's the, that's the first lie in the scripture. We're going to look at it next week in Genesis 3. Here's another lie. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Because your feelings are reality. Man, that's, our culture buys into that. That's, that's a lie. Uh, how about this one? God helps those who help themselves. Where is that in the Bible? 
Here's another lie. Not even God can forgive what you did. Some of you have come here today, and, and we're all carrying stories, aren't we? And your story is a, is, is a, is a story of brokenness, and either done to you or done by you, and you just don't think there's any redemption. You feel like that you're just untouchable. And man, I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you came today. Here's another lie. I know God forgives me. I just need to forgive myself. Hmm. Yeah. Do you know how many times the phrase self-forgiveness appears in the Bible? Zero. Hmm. Oh, I'd like to unpack that, but you'll have to come back. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I do want to consider today's lie, all right? And it's this. Uh, this is actually a quote from a, a self-help person. Healthy people do not have any need for Satan. That's today's lie. Yeah. So, so, in other words, one of Satan's biggest deceptions is to make you think he doesn't exist. Because if, if people don't believe you exist, how can you resist them? See? So... So, let's deconstruct that lie today. I have, in what remains in our time here, I have an instruction. I want to I give you some instruction. We're going we're gonna to just uh, talk uh, through several passages of Scripture, all right, to deconstruct that lie, instruction. Then I have an objection. I have an objection that I want to field. So, some may be here today and they say, well, I don't know, Pastor. Okay, well, I'm going to deal with that objection. Okay. Instruction objection and then then i'm going to preach okay i've got an exhortation that's where we're going this morning instruction objection exhortation all right and here's the instruction the instruction is is this you have an enemy we have an enemy the bible says that we have an enemy and the bible names the enemy the devil or Satan. Now the word devil means adversary or opponent. That's what the word diabolos, devil, means. The word Satan means accuser, accuser. Adversary, opponent, accuser, accuser. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, the devil appears as a serpent. In 1 Peter 5, uh, he appears as a lion. In Revelation 12, he appears as a dragon. In 2 Corinthians 11:14, he masquerades as an angel of light. So, now, there's not a chapter in the Bible that says, and now in this chapter, we're going to hear the biography and history of a fallen angel named Satan. I wish it were that uh, uh, accessible. I wish it were that clear. Um, the reason why there's not a section like that, as I look at Scripture, is that, is that the Bible is a grand story of salvation. So what we read when we open up the 66 books that constitute the Bible is one grand story of creation, fall, redemption, 
restoration. And so um, as we are reading God's grand story, we pick up pieces of information about the devil. And, and he sort of pops up. So like in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read about how, how God created the, the heavens and the earth and how God created the man and the woman and placed them in the Garden of Eden and, and made them stewards and, and uh, priest, uh, 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 priest stewards and managers of, of what did not belong to them. And it's just glorious. And then in chapter 3, there's a talking serpent. Whoa, where'd that come from? See, that's how, that's how the story unfolds. And so what we have to do is pay attention to the story and, and take notes of the story, and then we'll get pieces of information about the devil, and we put them into a picture based on some observations. Here are five observations uh, about Satan. Observation number one. Satan belongs to the created world. Satan belongs to the created world. We read that in Colossians 1, 16. For by him, that's Jesus, God the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and through him. So, so God the Son created the world out of nothing. And thus all creatures in, uh, creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth owe their existence to God the Son's creative power. Satan is no exception. Satan belongs to the created world. Observation number two, Satan was created good. Genesis 1.31 And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So, so all of creation was deemed good, in, in fact very good, because God is good. And there's no evil or sin in God. And thus Satan was created morally good. Observation two. Observation three. Satan sinned in an angelic rebellion which God swiftly judged. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then in Jude, verse 6, so Jude only has one chapter, so it's verse 6, says, and the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there was, a, there was some angelic rebellion, which God swiftly judged. And thus the question, well, when, when did this rebellion occur? I don't know. I, I don't. Um, I, you know, maybe sometime between Gen Genesis one thirty one and Genesis chapter three verse one. I, I mean, I, I, I don't see. Scripture doesn't specify. So again, the Bible seems intentional about not giving Satan and his fallen angels more press than what God says uh, that that we need to know. Okay. 
That's observation number three. Observation number four, Satan has limited authority in the realm of this world. Limited authority. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And in, G in, in John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus stated that Satan is the ruler of this world. So, so Satan is a ruler, but a limited ruler. He's leashed. He's on a leash. Uh, for instance, in the book of Job, Satan must seek God's permission to tempt Job. Uh, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, when Jesus was tempted in the desert, uh, Jesus finally said, Be gone, Satan! And guess what happened? He left. So Satan has limited authority. And here's the fifth observation. Satan's aim, his goal, his purpose is to keep you from Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls Satan the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God. Of Christ who is the image of God he, what what are your enemies plans for you does he want to haunt your house does he want to make your head spin around and have you spew green slime you want to get you to get that image in your head will you yeah I know get does he want to get you to carve a pentagram on your leg uh, you know what here's what he wants he wants to keep you and keep me from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ who is the image of God. That's what he wants. He wants to make you selfish. He wants to make you narcissistic. He wants you to live for your glory. He wants you to live for your addiction. He wants you to live for anyone or anything that's not Jesus. And as long as he keeps you from Jesus, from the true and living God, he doesn't care how that happens. He'll make you sick like Job. He'll make you rich like Solomon. He'll make you legalistic like the Pharisees. Just so long as you forget your creator in the days of your youth. That's what he wants. He wants you to believe the lie that you don't need a Savior. He wants you to think you're God. He wants you to live out your truth. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. He wants you to suppress the truth and exchange the truth for a lie. He wants you to love the world and ignore the word. He wants you to be happy or sad or scared or complacent or hungry or full. Anything that distracts you from Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. And that's why the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's the instruction. You have an enemy. Now, 
Maybe they're just coming to second service. Or maybe not. But there are objections in the hallways. Can you hear them? Pastor, are you for real? Are, how, how can you stand there with all of your education and speak to us with all of our education in our education-rich university community and tell us that you believe in the existence of an evil supernatural personality called Satan? Really? I mean, we're modern people. We have medicinal solutions, sociological solutions, psychological solutions, political solutions. In other words, we've evolved to the point where we can diagnose the dysregulated behaviors of this world and we can just apply natural solutions. We don't need this superstitious talk about the devil. Healthy people don't need Satan. Okay. So, so, I get that. Let me, let me have us think about it this way. A few years ago, um, a professor at Columbia University, um, Andrew DeBanco, he still, he still is a part of the faculty there. He self-identifies as a non-observant Jew. He wrote a book titled, The Death of Satan, How Americans Have, have Lost the Sense of Evil. Here's, here's the first sentence in his book. He wrote, A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. So, so it's like, so, so how then do you explain what, what really is evidently evil in our culture? How, how do you explain that, see? And Del Banco says that our, that our, 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 our uh, city of man culture just, is just starved for intellectual resources to be able to really try to cope with this. And he, he illustrates how hesitant and how naive our culture has become about calling evil for what it is. And, and part of his argument in the book, uh, he cites the movie Silence of the Lambs. And he refers to that incarcerated monster, Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter, who is questioned by the young FBI uh, cadet, Clarice Starling, right? Now, now, Starling, Starling is named for a small bird. So you, you catch the Hannibal the Cannibal and Starling, all right? And, 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 and in, in the, the novel, uh, Starling wanders uh, to Hannibal the Cannibal. Well, what happened? What happened to you? And here's what he said. And, you know, as I read this, you, you can't help but hear Anthony Hopkins in this, right? What happened to you? Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? You see what he's doing? Hannibal mocks the modern Western mindset of a closed universe where God has been eliminated and human behavior can be reverse engineered to core causes. 
Well, well, think about the atrocities of David Koresh at Waco and, and Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City and Osama bin Laden. And think about our nation's legacy of racism. And think about the pastoral and clergy abuses and their cover-ups. Are we to simply explain these atrocities by calling them and, and just relegating them to just chemical imbalances? Now, now to be clear, you know, there are chemical imbalances, and we do, in fact, benefit from medical and sociological and psychological and psychiatric sciences. We do, and these sciences help us grasp and address diseases of the mind and body. So faith and science are not hostile to each other, as often is assumed. They act more like siblings. Science comes from the Latin scientia, which means to know, knowledge. Well, Christian theology, revealed truth, is a way of knowing. Thomas Aquinas was a Christian thinker and clergy in the 13th century, and he called theology the queen of sciences. So in other words, he's claiming that biblical Christianity is a lens through which we interpret and see the world. Biblical Christianity gives us a worldview, a big picture. And, and here's the big picture. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning we don't wrestle merely against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There it is. A, a biblical worldview. So reality consists of a flesh and blood realm and a spiritual realm. A realm of darkness and a realm of light. There is the, the scripture indicates the power of Satan and the power of God. But do not be mistaken, they are not two equal superpowers duking it out. There's an insurgency going on, a rebel uprising within the one true kingdom who is ruled by a renegade enemy. And this enemy runs an organized operation. Thus the phrases rulers, authorities, cosmic power, spiritual forces of evil. So your fight isn't merely against other humans. And if you don't understand it from a biblical worldview, then you're, gonna, you're just going to assess blame to, to only what you can see. It's against an unseen spiritual enemy as well. The devil and his legions, and he wants to devour you. Jesus himself said in John 10.10 10, that he has come, Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is a taker, not a maker. And again, you may be thinking, wow, pastor, this is gloomy. Gloomy? I think this is some of the most optimistic, positive, uplifting teaching in the Bible. I really do. What's gloomy is being in a situation that I don't understand. That's what's, and if I don't understand what's going on, it's like I'm groping in the dark. 
But the Bible says that the light of the glory of the gospel has invaded the darkness. And that light, that light came, why? When Jesus came and spoke to Saul of Tarsus, Jesus commissioned him and said, Saul, you are my servant and witness. I'm sending you to both Jews and Gentiles. Here it is, here it is. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. There it is. And then, and then, and then in Ephesians chapter, I read Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. If you just look back on the other page in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, the apostle Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. See? We, we were once darkness, but because of Christ, we are now light in the Lord. Ah, beloved, I don't see how. Anyone can accept the biblical doctrine of salvation while rejecting the doctrine of evil and the devil. I don't. Otherwise, what was Jesus doing on the cross? See, I mean, what are we rescued from? Paul tells us that at the cross, Christ defeated the principalities and the powers, triumphing over them, shaming them by means of the cross and validating his victory in his bodily resurrection. And this defeat was like D-Day, Normandy Beach, when the Allies invaded June the 6th, 1944. It was the beginning of the end of Nazi Germany. The, see, the beginning of the end was June 6th. So the rest was just a mopping up operation. And that's where we are in salvation history. We're in the mopping up operation. The now and the not yet. And so every baptism seals Satan's doom. Every first Saturday service strikes fear in the principalities and powers. Every mission trip to Montana causes the realm of darkness to quake. Did you know that Satan gets one mention in the, in the letter to the Romans? Yeah, just one. Just one, just one. And it's this, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You believe that? I believe that. Yeah, yeah. He's doomed. He's doomed. And this leads me to preaching time. You've had the instruction. You say, you better hurry, Pastor. I am. The bell's already gone, right? The instruction, the objection, and here's the exhortation, church. Here's the exhortation, all right? Uh, uh, in verse 10, the first word is, finally, finally. Now, now listen, Paul, Paul is not finishing. It doesn't mean, finally, I'm about to close the letter. That's not what that means. Actually, actually the word means, from now on. Henceforth, okay? So, so you have an enemy, stand and fight. We, we are being invited to experience the miracle of being empowered by a divine power. Be strong. Put on the armor of God. And stand and fight. 
Because Christianity is warfare. We're in occupied enemy territory. We're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. We're not called to let go and let God or just hand it over to the Lord. God says, stand and fight. The image of armor of God, is, it, it, it means this is not a game. This is life. This is our life. This is our calling. And the image of the armor of God is not simply for defensive purposes. Rather, it is to take the fight to the enemy. And that's what we preachers call spiritual warfare. The term spiritual warfare doesn't, as a term, doesn't appear in the Bible. Uh, it's a term that, that we preacher types and seminary types used to describe the struggle of standing for the Lord against the Lord's enemies. So it's a moral struggle. It's about resisting Satan's schemes. It's about living like Jesus Christ wherever he has put us. So here's the deal. Spiritual warfare typically takes place in the trenches of the mundane. So for parents, spiritual warfare takes place when they love and nurture and protect that child who's kept you up all night. Huh? It's a fight. I've prayed with some of you about that. It's a fight. Stand and fight. Spiritual warfare happens in your marriage when you're experiencing challenges of all sorts, but you agree to see it through together. You're going to see it through together. Spiritual warfare means acting out the strength of God in Christ to show love and do good and forgive as we've been forgiven. Forgiveness is an act of spiritual warfare because forgiveness defies the accuser. He doesn't know what to do with a forgiven person. It's an act of war, a lethal act of war against the accuser. Spiritual warfare happens when you go to your team at work and you build a culture of integrity, integrity and industry and community and, and you have the difficult conversations and you problem solve and you stay at the table and you become quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Spiritual warfare happens when we subdue certain emotions like anger, like anger. And I know some are going to say, well, Pastor, Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. Yeah, 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 well, let's keep reading. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You see what Paul is saying? Paul is, and then later on he says, get rid, get rid, let, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you. Get rid of that, you see. Get rid of that. Anger gives Satan traction to tempt you. And spiritual warfare means showing up in a high-stress middle school classroom and bringing the peace of Christ's presence and self-control into that space so that learning can occur. I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is that spiritual warfare is not primarily about protection from, from, from sensational power encounters or, 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 or you know, uh, um, satanic attacks that we Hollywood might concoct for us. It's mainly about how we act out the strength of Christ to take the battle to the darkness. It's offensive. It's not a set of techniques. It's your life and my life being recreated in the likeness of God. We have the Lord's armor. 
and we have to do the fighting. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us, but we have to wage it. So, so, so as one author put it, the choice is not whether you're going to be a Christian soldier or a Christian civilian, but whether you are going to be a prepared soldier or an unprepared one. And you've not been asked to win. You've been asked to stand and fight in the victory of someone who has already won. And Jesus has already dealt Satan his fatal blow in the cross. Normandy Beach happened in the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ and the sending of his Holy Spirit. Revelation 12, 12 says that Satan knows his time is short. And like a beheaded snake whose body whiplashes back and forth in its death throes, he's just going to cause as much chaos as he can because he's the devil. But Christ is one, and Christ is winning, and Christ will win, so stand and fight. God has elected to take Satan out by suiting you up in Christ's own armor. God wants to glorify Jesus Christ by using Christ's people in Christ's armor, in Christ's name, to defeat Christ's enemy by the power of Christ's spirit. God means for us to share his victory so that we can give him glory for giving us strength. So don't shrink back. Don't quit. The power of the Lord comes as you step out in faith. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to stand up to the truth. I'm going to be strong in his power. Church family, here's the word. You have an enemy. Stand and fight. Be strong. Put on the Lord's armor. The battle belongs to him.